Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. Well, good morning, gang. Welcome to New Southern Garden. Of course, I'm your gardening pal, Nathan Wilson. And as always, so glad that you've decided to join us this Saturday. Whether you're listening live here on WRWH 93.9 FM at 10 a.m. Or maybe you're listening to the repeated program at 8 p.m. There are now two times, two times a Saturday you can listen to New Southern Garden. So, if Georgia football gets in the way, you can always check in the garden in the evening. And of course, we thank you to all those who are listening to the program on NewSouthernGarden.com, whether you're listening through the podcasting apps like Apple Music or SoundCloud, Podbean, TuneIn, all of those apps are on your smartphone or tablet devices. And of course, you can stay up to date with what's going on with New Southern Garden online as well as turning on the radio. So, we've got a great program lined up for you today. Of course, the past couple of weeks we've been talking about herbs. Is it herbs or is it herbs? We explain how to say it, how to pronounce it, and how to grow them. Uh, Of course, if you missed that program, it's online, NewSouthernGarden.com. But I thought we'd transition today a bit and talk some about native plants. Uh, Work with the local native plant organization. And we had a meeting this week, and I just thought, how about we talk about some native plants, native trees, or large shrubs, to give you some great fall color. Now, maybe it's not too timely. Maybe we're just delayed a bit. There's still a few leaves on trees, but I would say that the peak is gone, right? The peak color. Everybody talks about the peak color. And of course, that may be gone, but that does not stop you from using this wonderful season to plant trees and shrubs, things that will give you fall color starting as early as next year. So be sure to stay with us the whole hour here because we're going to go through a number of native trees and some might be considered large shrubs, but they will all give you spectacular display in the fall. So even though this year's fall color has come and gone, you can still prepare your garden, prepare your landscape for a great fall color display next year. Of course, we want to litter. I shouldn't say litter. We want to scatter amongst our gardens, trees and shrubs that are going to give us all shades of fall color from, of course, greens, sort of the basic, but then things start to change and we start to see yellows and some plants give us more orangey, orangey shades. And then, of course, reds and even purples, nearly purple, maroon. So we're going to talk about some wonderful native plants that, of course, because they're native, uh, they're going to perform well here. 
Now, it doesn't mean that everything uh, we plant survives. There can still be some issues, and I'll bring up a few issues uh, with certain plants, so you'll be on the forefront if you decide to plant them, that they may need a little more attention in cultivation than they might plant it in the wild, just popping up, God planting them. And of course, uh, uh, nature sort of takes care of itself. But when we get into the landscape, sometimes plants need a little help and a little attention from the gardener himself or herself. So uh, let's see, before we get into the meat of today's program, I did want to give you a little update about my and my wife's, my family's lavender garden. Of course, it's not really a garden yet, but I did have time with all the things that I do throughout the week to mark bedlines, mark pathways, and a patio area, and some stairs, some steps. So we've got all of these things essentially drawn out on the ground. And let me tell you how I go about the process. Of course, in many cases, you can design a space on paper, and you should. You should be designing things on paper. Just it doesn't have to be uh, particularly to scale if, uh, you know, that's a concern trying to scale everything out. But you do want to have a good representation of the space. So I measured the area that I wanted to use and I did some quick rough sketches of some patterns uh, or shapes of design of uh, flower beds, these lavender beds. And of course, it's a large area. So if we do a rough Square footage count, it's nearly 5,000 square feet. So it's a big area. Of course, we've got uh, seven acres at my place, so we've got plenty of room to do all kinds of things. But this is going to be a main feature. It's just right there uh, in our recreation area where uh, you can see it from, say, the kids' playhouse to the swimming pool uh, where we have their birthday parties. It's all nearby. So it's going to be a big feature. And uh, so... I'm sort of getting off track here. So I started with some sketches on paper, what I wanted to look like, where I wanted the patio, where I wanted walkways. And then I went out into the space. And I like to call going into the space and designing your space as in situ, <laughs> in situ design, which just means on site or in place. So I'm physically standing there in this 5,000 square feet. And I start by getting some string and in a 5,000 square foot area, you need many hundreds of feet of string <laughs> and some pins. Uh, you could use some kind of stakes. Uh, I use landscape staples. I found that those work well when we're drawing bed lines with string because I would run the string, position it where I want it, and at the end of a bed or wherever I make a turn or a bend, I'll pop one of those landscape staples in tie it around the string, and then redirect that line. So I really never have to cut the string. I'm just moving the line around and twisting it and, of course, pinning it in place. So I uh, strung out all the beds, strung out all of the, um, all the pathways and the patio. And then, of course, I come back for something a little more permanent because the string uh, has to be removed when you start digging. But uh, I spray with the spray paint over the top of those lines, and then once those lines are marked with spray paint, I'm able to pull, I'm able to pull up the stakes, the staples, and the string, wind that back up around the spool, which is probably the, the most difficult part of all this. Uh, and now what we have is sort of 
a vision, right? A concept. We've got these bedlines marked. We've got the pathways marked. And as soon as you do that and the strings pulled out, you can start digging. Uh, if you need to level off a patio area, you've got that mark now. So you know where the corners of the patio will fall. So you can dig that area level to make your patio. If you're going to build a deck, you'll know uh, the dimensions of it there. And of course, the pathways, they'll be treated. We'll have to lift up the turf. We're going to use something a little more textural and doesn't require the mowing that the existing turf does so for the pathways we'll dig those lines out and uh, probably use some pebble stone uh, something like that and of course then the beds the beds are marked so you'll be removing the turf there and cultivating the bed you'll be turning the soil over and I find that doing that with spray paint is just a very easy and um quick way to get started. Uh, I like to use the string first because string is not as permanent. It can be lifted up and redirected. So if you use string to mark out any of your landscape beds, you could use a garden hose because uh, once those warm up in the sun, they're quite pliable and you can shape nice curves with garden hoses. Um, but in order to get that line sort of more permanently on the ground for a short period of time, you can use the spray paint to mark the line then pull your hoses away, pull your strings away, and boom, you've got a design. You've got your lines marked. You know where your beds are going to fall, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just, uh, like I said, it's an easy way, especially if, if you're not prone or don't, uh, if you get frustrated with drawing, you know, you don't have to be an artist to, to get a concept down. But you do want to at least have a good idea. And whether you do the uh, drawing on paper or start in the field in situ with these uh, painting your lines and whatnot, no matter how you go about it, it is a good idea to uh, transfer that image on paper in place on your growing area. So that's where we stand with the lavender garden. It's going to be a labor of love this winter because I got a lot to do. But I want to keep you updated. <laughs> I say I, I haven't got as far along as I'd like because my husbandly duties. Um, I'm also refurbishing a dresser for Sam, so that's taking up a lot of time. When you're redoing furniture, it's a lot of sanding. It's a lot of a lot of tedious things. Especially this dresser is is probably is much older, maybe sixties or seventies. It's got a great look. It's just a classic looking dresser, but. It does have some detailed areas that take a bit of sanding, a bit of time. So stripping off all the layers of paint and varnish that were on top to get it down to the bare wood so that we can finish it with the color and the stain and, 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 and everything that Sam wants. That's taken me away from some of my gardening tasks. But uh, you got to be happy. you got to live in a happy house. you got to keep the wife happy. So we're working on that uh, furniture as well. <laughs> okay, so that's enough about the lavender garden. Now, but, uh, one, one more little short tidbit I want to talk about before we talk about these awesome native plants for fall color is I received some photographs this week, and I thought I'd go ahead and address this instead of waiting until the end of the month, which is near, very near. <laughs> uh, I thought I'd go ahead and, and address this question. Uh, the concern here is that, well, let's start off with a plant. There's a plant in question, and it's the gold mop fault cypress. Now, gold mop fault cypress, we've talked about before. It's this beautiful yellow plant. It's got very chartreuse. I can't call it chartreuse. It's gold. And the foliage is very small, very fine textured leaves. They're just barely like little 
flakes, you know? And so it's got this great texture, and it gets its name Gold Mop because the leaves and branches sort of arc over with these fine textures. It looks like the end of a mop. It's very much like the end of a mop. So probably one of the most appropriately named plants we have on the market today. And in the photographs, the, the gardener here, she's noticed that there's some browning, particularly on the interior of the plant, and there are a few branches that have completely turned brown. Now, the gold mop fault cypress is an evergreen, so it shouldn't turn completely brown over winter. It does not drop its leaves. It's evergreen. So any time that an evergreen plant does start turning brown or dropping leaves, we may have cause for concern. However, this uh, browning that's happening from the inside and, and pushing outwards uh, appears to be very natural and normal, particularly for this time of year. So we know that the oak trees and the maple trees, they're deciduous. They, they uh, turn those beautiful fall colors, and then the leaves turn brown and they fall. And of course, those trees have no leaves on them all winter. But evergreen plants, they maintain most of their foliage all year, through the winter in particular. And they will, though, they will drop some of their older leaves. Now, that is why when I notice these pictures and the description that she's giving us, that the, that the leaves are dying back from the interior outwards. So that means that the older leaves are dying back. So what we contribute this effect to is called translocation. And translocation, we've talked about before, but that is basically where your, your plants are taking nutrients and water out of the older growth and sending it somewhere else. Now, in the fall time, the plants are taking the nutrients out of older growth and putting it down into the root system as sort of storage. Roots are great for storage, particularly over winter. And then in the spring, they'll translocate those goods again and send them up into the plant to make new growth. So you may see this twice a year in the fall and in the spring as plants are relocating uh they're very good recyclers. They, essentially, they're recycling nutrients and water, taking it from one place and sending it to another area that needs some attention. In the spring, I would encourage you to fertilize these types of plants um, because they'll, they may use so much of their foliage that you're dropping a lot of leaves if there's not enough nutrients in the soil. But regardless, uh, just to calm this gardener's fears, this is completely normal, completely natural, particularly this time of year. We had a dry spell so uh, right before fall, so we may see that translocation increased even more. She did water it some when she noticed this, but it's nothing to cause concern. There should not be any bacteria, disease at play. The plant is just hibernating. So when we get back from this break, we're going to talk all about fall plants, uh, fall color plants, native plants for fall color. <laughs> Hold on tight. Now I'm lost in Hey gang, do you sometimes feel like you are riding a lonely trail while gardening, all alone with no one to join in the fun? Well, join the new Southern Garden community today and find peace of mind by sharing your experiences, whether they be poor ones or successful ones. New Southern Garden is on Facebook and Instagram, so I'd love for you to friend, follow, like, share whatever it is we're doing these days. Also, you can check out our website at newsoutherngarden.com. 
where you can not only find every episode of the show ever, but you can also send us a question via our Contact Us page. It's never fun gardening alone, so get social with the new Southern Garden family and let's grow well. So, gang, this morning on New Southern Garden, we are going to talk all about native plants with great fall color. Now, I should say native trees, native large shrubs. We're not going to talk about small plants. We're going to talk about plants that get big. Or, well, not too big. Some of them do. You know that uh, oaks are, most of the oaks we use in the landscape are native, and of course, the ones you see growing. Uh, in the woods and on the mountaintops, those are all native oaks, and they got so some of those have great fall color. But of course, oaks get quite large. Now, maples, of course, we're not going to talk about maples, but I'm going to mention some things that you're probably already familiar with. Maples, many of them are native. We have the red maple and the sugar maple and the silver maple, which is sort of a weak tree, but it does have decent fall color. And so maples are notorious. They're well known for having great fall color. And of course, just in the red maple world alone, there are plenty of selections, cultivars, varieties, if you will, that actually have different shades of fall color. Some are in the yellow, some are push an orange, and there's a few that push towards the hotter reds. But, uh, of course, these are fairly large trees. So uh, I'm going to shrink that size down, and we're going to talk about mainly small trees. Some of these trees are going to be quite unusual. Some we have mentioned before. Some I just completely love. Uh, But really, all of these trees or large shrubs could fit in a what one of our customers calls her space, a postage stamp size garden. If you live in a neighborhood that, of course, is uh, high density (laughs) and you've not got much of a front or back garden, maybe essentially no garden on the side because you're so close to other houses and your neighbors, these are still trees that could find a great place in your landscape. Uh, Some of these are probably just topping out in the 25-foot range, and that could be well into several decades. So one of the very first plants that comes to mind for fall color is one that is well known and one that you surely have heard of or maybe have had experience with. I know that I did growing up. There was one of these trees in the backyard. And of course, in the spring, we got these huge white flowers on it. The tree was probably only 13, 15 feet tall at the most. Hasn't grown much since. These tend to be understory plants with those beautiful white flowers in the spring and, of course, red berries in the fall. Uh, In addition to wonderful fall color, of course, I'm talking about dogwood. Dogwood is one of the most iconic plants of the South, particularly because uh, uh, Cornus, Florida is its name, and it is found. It was first found in Florida, but it does spread all across the East Coast here. And, of course, we've been using it in southern landscapes (laughs) probably since the South was created. Uh, They're just wonderful plants, and people around the world also covet our Florida dogwood because... It is so showy, and it is one of the first trees to bloom in the spring. But we're not here to talk about spring blooms. We're here to talk about uh, fall color. So what kind of fall color are we talking about with the dogwood? Well, 
After uh, fall has begun, these trees will transition from that green, that classic green with sort of a silvery underside, to a rich red and maroon, probably one of the darkest, one of the darkest fall colors, richest colors that you may find uh, with native trees. Now, because they do have that potential to produce little red berries, you've got this great combination going with the maroon red leaves and those brilliant red. They're not a dark red. They are a brilliant, nearly cherry, fire engine red berries, and that can really stand out. Now, of course, those fruits that they produce are going to attract birds to your garden, and this is a wonderful plant to attract birds to your garden because it is a native plant, and the dogwood, of course, has been uh, around with our native birds from the beginning of time, I suppose, and they are well aware that it's a wonderful food source. So if you're looking to bring in birds, consider dogwood. Not only do they give you that spring flower, they give you some light shade. Uh, you can plant some shady plants, ferns and hellebores and hostas underneath them as they age. And of course, then in the fall, you've got the berries and that red maroon leaf Great for wildlife, but also great for the gardener who's growing it. Now, with that being said, there are some issues in the landscape with dogwood. If you were to consult or read the, the, uh, the listing under dogwood in the Bible of Woody Plants, which of course is the manual of Woody Plants by Michael Durr, uh, Dr. Michael Durr from the University of Georgia, uh, the problems this plant has, the insects, the disease issues is is one of the longest entries in his bible of woody plants so growing dogwood does come with some concerns uh, because they're an understory tree uh, even though they can perform in a wide variety of soils if you want to give it the best shot it probably does need a rich soil kind of trying to mimic what they would be enjoying if they were planted under trees in the forest doesn't mean, though, that they can't grow in full sun. They can grow in full sun to shade. They'll bloom better in the sun. They'll grow faster in the sun. But still, we have troubles with certain bacterial and fungus, like anthracnose is one of the worst things we see with them. Uh, what happened was, when we started bringing dogwoods, particularly the Kusa dogwood over from China, uh, the Kusa brought some disease that our native dogwoods just had no defenses for, no immunity, if you will, to sort of relate it to human health. And so with that in mind, this disease can easily get into our landscapes. Of course, landscapers are going from house to house, maybe trimming dogwoods, and you can easily bring some things in. So you may have to consider treating this preventatively for fungus, for bacteria. That's the best use of fungicide is as a preventative you could also spray it with dormant oil, just like you would your fruit trees, uh, before the spring really gets going, before those buds crack open, and that may help alleviate some of the pressures for that, that coming season. But once a dogwood is established, it generally can handle its own. Now, they do have a life. They don't seem to live forever, uh, but we do see some longevity because they are native here. They are definitely a long-lived tree um, and can be if it's very happy. So, plant a dogwood. Just remind ourselves of that classic southern flowering tree, but always be on the lookout for potential issues. I have lost a lot of dogwoods just because of certain things. Now, there are some hybrids, which is a cross between Kusa and um, our flowering Florida dogwood. 
And I, I like using the hybrids in the landscape. They come with some vigor, so they grow quickly. They bloom well. They sort of bloom more like a kusa than a native dogwood. But regardless, they also come with some disease resistance, which is absolutely wonderful. Now, another spring-blooming tree that has some great color in the fall is going to be the American Fringe Tree. The American Fringe Tree, of course, has these abundant, tassel-like, beard-like. It looks like a beard, which is how it gets its common name, Grancy Graybeard. Uh, but these beautiful white flowers in the spring really makes it worth planting alone. But because the autumn foliage on the American Fringe Tree is this clear, bright yellow, it really stands out in a landscape. It really does. It is one of the most brilliant uh, yellows that you'll find with native fall color. However, the question is, I always get when I recommend this plant, um, well, isn't that just a woodland tree? Can I put it in the sun? And I said, absolutely. So it is a woodland tree like dogwood, but of course humans are curious. So we pulled them out of the woods, put them in the landscapes. I have seen them uh, at a site in Hall County planted in what we call a hell strip, which is a very hot strip of soil that's in the parking lot of establishments. And you'll know what I'm talking about. You go to the Walmart, you go to the, uh, uh, the, the Publix or wherever you shop and you see in the parking lots those what we call the hell strips because it's so hot and brutal. But these American fringe trees are standing loud and proud, and they are just glorious year after year. Every time I, I drive by this place uh, several times a year, so I see it in different forms. And those American fringe trees don't seem to bat an eye, even in that parking lot planting. First of all, the uh, spring blooms, wonderful show. It's just like this fringe of white. The best description is a beard, like a beard. And then in the fall, we get that bright yellow foliage. Now, the American fringe tree tends to be multi-stem. So it doesn't really want to be a single trunk, but that's okay because that multi-stem effect gives you a little architecture in the fall once the leaves, or in the winter, once the leaves have dropped. So American fringe tree, no real major concerns, beautiful spring flowers, and of course, great fall color. When we get back, more native plants for your landscape. The sun shone bright. Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. So, gang, welcome back for the second half of New Southern Garden. Of course, today we're talking about bringing some native plants, particularly uh, small trees, large shrubs, into the landscape for fall color. If you've enjoyed this year's fall color, which I think was pretty good, it's pretty nice. So, it has some beautiful shades all over the place. If you'd like to see more of that in your landscape, then go ahead and get a jump start now. Go ahead and start adding in these trees, these shrubs, to give you a fall, a great fall display. Don't wait till summer. It'll be too late. It'll be hot. It'll be dry. Your plants will need a lot of attention. But if you go ahead and plant over fall and winter, what's left of fall, it sure is feeling like winter lately, 
But if you use this time where it's cooler, the ground stays warm, the plants are leafless, they're dormant, then you can really get some root growth happening, doubling the size, tripling hopefully by the end of uh, winter, tripling the size of your root system so that going into spring and then into summer, which we always go from spring to summer very quickly, your plant won't be struggling. It will have a fairly well-developed root system and it will just have a jump start on spring growth. So before the break, we were talking about two uh, small, relatively small trees. They're maybe 25 foot tall in many decades. The dogwood, the American, the, rather the Florida dogwood, I should call it. Our flowering native dogwood, wonderful plants, great red fall color, nearly maroon. And then we talked about the very bright, clear yellow of American fringe tree. Now these two plants would work well together because anytime we have that bright, clear yellow, it's a great idea to partner that plant with something that turns rich red or stays rich red. So the American fringe tree contrasting with the red of the dogwood will be a spectacular display. You may consider using some loripedalum. Loripedalums are evergreen plants. They tend to be, uh, the, the modern ones tend to be a red maroon leaf. And if you underskirted your fringe tree with that red maroon leaf, you've got a marvelous display in the fall. Just something as simple as that would be a great thing to do and to get lots of impression from your fall color plants. Now, the next plant. Our next native tree with awesome and dramatic fall color. It probably has some of the best fall color amongst any plant around the world. But it is quite overlooked. And it is ornamental, but we don't really think of it much as ornamental. And that's the pawpaw. The pawpaw. Now, we don't see it much in the trade. When we do, it's kind of expensive. I think there's some issues with trying to propagate it. Uh, but the thing is, it's got these very unique leaves to begin with. If you're familiar with pawpaw, uh, you know that it sort of has this tropical appearance. And of course, it is, I think, technically, if I remember right, yes, I'm just running through my database, my Rolodex in my brain here, that pawpaw is really one of the few, if not only, native plants with a fruit that is essentially consumable. Now, you know, there's, there's blueberry. That's a native plant. The uh, uh, rabbit eye blueberry is a native plant. But this is sort of a tree uh, with a fruit, much like, say, sort of a mango or something. But it's, once it's established in the landscape, it tends to be quite low maintenance and because it's native, completely adaptable to our southern landscapes. But it is very, very wildlife friendly. Birds will come by, maybe possums, raccoons, squirrels. Now, I know you probably don't want all of those creatures in your landscape, uh, but hopefully you won't have a major rodent problem. Uh, but regardless, they do have uh, an attraction for our beautiful zebra swallowtail butterfly. So there are many reasons why you might want to plant this. It does have these very unusual, very tropical-like foliage to begin with. But the fall color on this plant is just an outstanding bright yellow. It is super bright yellow. It's got these big leaves. And just like the American fringe tree, it will light up 
any area that it's planted in. Whether you put it in shade, no problem, pawpaw grows there naturally, or whether you put it in sun, you'll have even more flowers and even more blooms and even more fruits, uh, and you'll have wonderful fall color wherever you decide to put it. Pawpaw is hard to come by. It's not... uh, not readily available in the trade, but it is still a plant worth looking into just for its fall color alone, despite all of its other attractions. Now, here's another plant, another great ornamental plant, which I did learn in plant school, if you will, when I was at the University of Georgia. You see this plant along roadsides, you see it in the woods, you see it on the edge of woods, but in reality, it's just like pawpaw, it's not too readily available in the trade. You won't find it at every nursery. You may have to go on the search and look for it, or maybe find this plant in the wild and collect seeds and grow your own. No, that's not too attractive to everybody, but if you really want sassafras, that's right, sassafras, of course, was used as a flavoring and drinks and all kinds of things for culinary purposes, but it does, in addition to being quite ornamental, it's got a great wildlife value because it is a host plant for the spice bush butterfly. The spice bush butterfly is kind of selective. It does go for spice bush, but it also goes uh, for sassafras. And so they will, these um, butterfly adults will lay their eggs. They will lay their eggs on the foliage. And of course, those butterfly caterpillars, the larvae, will consume the foliage. So just expect a little bit of that to happen. And to be honest, it's not that great concern because you know you are just helping the life cycle of the spice bush butterfly. The most interesting characteristic about this plant, sassafras, is probably its leaves its foliage, the shape of the foliage itself. They are essentially, can be described as mitten-shaped. So they have this sort of finger-like appearance in two little fingers or maybe three, three deep lobes. And so you, when you see a sassafras leaf, you know it's sassafras because there's not many plants, especially natively, that have these mitten-shaped leaves. So it completely unusual shape and they are attractive throughout the summer in particular because they tend to be on the bluer side. They are a green, don't get me wrong, but you tend to see with sassafras sort of a a bluer foliage. And then they really stand out in the autumn when the fall colors change. Here's why I said sassafras may be one of the best trees, uh, large shrubs for fall color is because they range from reds, to yellows, to uh, pastel pinks, and even into apricot, sort of an orangey, peachy color. But all of those colors can be displayed on the same plant at the same time. If you uh, are interested to see this, rather than just my uh, lackluster description, feel free to Google sassafras fall color, and you will see a wide variety of fall color on the same plant. It's really outstanding. Um, when, when sassafras, uh, after it flowers, there are some small blue berries that come along late in the season. And so just like the uh, pawpaw and the uh, dogwood, they do produce a fruit that is highly edible for songbirds. Songbirds may be, it may be even one of their favorites, the sassafras fruits. So not that they are super showy, uh, you'll probably spot them, but it's really a great plant because it's native. Our 
wildlife knows it, and of course the spice bush butterfly essentially needs it to complete its life cycle. So if you're trying to create a refuge for um, wildlife, create a refuge for pollinators, this would be one. Sassafras would be one tree you definitely want to add into the mix. Now, I said sassafras was probably one of the best trees for fall color, and it really rivals... There's really a nice rivalry between it and the next plant, which is serviceberry. Now, I've talked about serviceberry before, and I have called it the best small tree, native tree, for fall color. And it is very true. I would say that serviceberry and sassafras are great rivals with fall color, and they are right at the top of this list. But serviceberry tends to be more available in the nursery trade. So you go into a plant nursery and you're more likely to find serviceberry available rather than sassafras. Sassafras just hasn't moved on the market, so we don't grow it in the nurseries. But at Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week, we do grow serviceberries and we love them. We have two planted on site. I should probably have 200 planted on site because I love them so much. They are a small native tree. Uh, They can grow, grow quite quickly in their juvenile life. Uh, However, they probably are only going to reach that 25-foot range. Pretty much all of these are in the same size range, and that would be quite a long time from now. Uh, 15 feet to 20 feet is probably more expected in the landscape and for its its use. Uh, But serviceberry, like the American fringe tree, is a plant that has multiple stems. And of course, much like a crepe myrtle, that is a great attraction. Like I mentioned for the American fringe tree, these multi-stem trunks, plants that have that multi-stem effect, are great architectural because it's different than an oak tree or a maple tree with one solid thick trunk going up into the air. These smaller plants and almost large shrubs give you that multiple stem effect. And of course, even when the leaves are off the plant, those stems are still providing some kind of structure, architecture, and interest throughout winter. But serviceberry, just like dogwood and American fringe, is a wonderful flowering plant. It will actually bloom maybe earlier. Golly, it may be earlier than dogwood, to be honest, because it's a super early bloomer uh, like cherry trees, like ornamental cherry trees from Japan and China, the Asian cherries. Uh, It's a great alternative if you want to grow a native plant instead of an uh, oriental cherry from uh, the other part of the world. But these white flowers come on in the spring and they're dainty. They're like apple blossoms. Uh, Then the foliage pushes through when the flowering is over. And the foliage in spring and summer is quite a blue-green, so a wonderful color uh, plant, just like the the other one we talked about, like the sassafras, got this nice shade of blue-green. Then when fall comes, that's when the spectacular show comes on, because you may have reds and yellows and oranges all mixed in on the same leaves, just like the pawpaw. It's got a wide variety of color that exposes itself once the chlorophyll starts breaking down and the green goes away. The reds and yellows and oranges shows out, and it is a wonderful problem. I have to say it again. Between pawpaw and serviceberry, they're two great plants for awesome fall color. Now, I didn't mention that after the flowering happens, if those flowers become uh, pollinated, then they do produce a fruit. And that's how I got his name, serviceberry. There are some berries. They sort of look like blueberries, but they turn red. Uh, Sort of a, not a hot red, 
like the dogwood, but more of a subdued red, if you will, maybe a touch of yellow to it. You can eat those berries. You can eat those berries, but um, I like to leave the berries for for the uh, birds because the birds, of course, are going to be the ones that go crazy for service berry. Uh, when a plant produces berries, a lot of times I get the question, well, is it going to reseed and just grow everywhere? And you may see a few service berries pop up, but they're not a weed. They're a wonderful plant. Just pop them up and put them somewhere else. But most of the time with service berries, because the birds consume the fruit, very little actually hit the floor. Very little hit the ground to produce a new plant. So if you are looking If you are looking for a plant that birds will love, serviceberry is another one to add to that collection. Well, gang, we've got a few more plants to talk about in the last segment. And of course, we're going to continue talking about these smaller trees, larger shrubs that can fit almost into any size landscape. They're native. They've got wildlife attraction, but they all come with great fall color. When we get back, more of those plants for you to think about. Hey gang, it's Nathan. Thanks so much for listening to the New Southern Garden Podcast. Of course, I love providing you with horticultural information to get you growing and growing well. But sometimes you need more than just information. You need plants. So I'd love for you to join me at Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week. But you can find more than just me, of course. (laughs) At Lanier Nursery and Gardens, you can browse through our wide selection of ornamental trees, glorious shrubs, and colorful perennials and annuals. And I want to thank all our listeners who have already made the trek to Lanier Nursery. It's been a pleasure to meet you and hear your gardening stories. We've got a wonderful crew of folks who are just itching to help you grow your best garden ever. So check out LanierNurseryGardens.com for more information and be sure to like us on Facebook and Instagram. Now let's get growing together. So gang, today we've been talking about native plants, particularly native trees, well I should say small trees, large shrubs that could become tree-like, but they've all got great fall color. You need to be using this time, now that we've enjoyed that natural fall color in the mountains and along the roads, and maybe in our own back gardens of course. We need to use that as inspiration for increasing our fall gardens and the interest in our fall garden next fall. So go ahead and start planting some things this fall and winter with anticipation of it looking awesome next fall. We've talked about dogwood. We've talked about American fringe tree and pawpaw with its clear yellow fall color, beautiful plant. And the sassafras and the serviceberry, those two plants, of course, have a mottled effect. There is not just a clear color across their foliage. They are mixed with oranges, reds, apricots, some greens, uh, yellows, all on the same leaf. So using a variety of these plants, of course, you're going to be helping ecology because many of these are either a host plant for a certain pollinator or they attract wildlife. Uh, the, The fruits in particular attract birds and, of course, trees in general make a great resting place. Maybe even a little coverage, a little protection for wildlife over the winter. Now, the next tree that I want to mention, I've got like three more. Hopefully we'll have some time for them all. 
but the next tree is called sourwood. Now, sourwood, you're probably familiar with. It grows, of course, in the woods. Uh, I see them in the woods pretty commonly. You know, some of these plants I don't see in the wild very often, but sourwood, you tend to see it quite a bit. And it's uh, probably one of our prettiest native trees for many reasons. But it's just not planted enough in our residential landscapes. It really helps to create that eco-friendly yard you're looking for. Uh, It's got these very unusual, unique, finger-like flowers in early summer. And they're a great favorite for pollinators. As a matter of fact, uh, some honey growers will market honey during that time of year as sourwood because... The bees love this plant. It's also known as lily of the valley tree. I didn't know it was called that until just a few years ago, but lily of the valley tree, because it has those lily of the valley-like flowers, uh, sort of uh, white bells that sort of hang off of these fingers as the uh, flower, uh, flower starts to mature, and they just dangle off and drape off of the branches. Really a wonderful summer bloomer. We've talked about serviceberry, dogwood, uh, fringe tree, all those are spring bloomers, but you can use sourwood to get you some of that summer flower as well. Now, of course, the um, the leaves, they're long, they're shiny, they're green, so very great texture to add to the landscape, but it's really the fall, just like these other plants. It's really the fall when sourwood makes a wonderful statement. Those green leaves start to turn to a very deep red and maroon, and As the uh, dried flowers go from summer, you sort of highlight these rich red tones, just making the tree itself really stand out. Um, If if the seed pods are allowed to hang out uh, at the end of autumn, those seed pods contrast so well with that rich red tone of the fall color. So you've got to be sure to look into sourwood. It would make a great shade tree of all of the trees today. Well, some of them are just large shrubs, but of all the trees today, this is probably going to be the largest. It would definitely be over the 25 foot, pushing uh, probably 40 or more in its lifetime. Not necessarily in my lifetime, but it is a plant that is long-lived. It's going to outlive us all, and our children and grandchildren can enjoy its wonderful attributes even after we are compost in our gardens. Okay, let's not get too morbid. Now, the next plant is, you probably think it's just a weed if you've heard of it, and some of you may think it's poisonous, but I'm going to say the word sumac. Now, I know when you hear the word sumac, you initially think about poisonous sumac. Well, this is not poisonous sumac. Poisonous sumac actually doesn't grow quite readily in our area. It tends to grow in very wet areas, so you find it around Okefenokee for for sure. Um, But up here in the hills, you rarely would see poisonous sumac. I hate, though, that... um, I hate, though, that it has this name because it's associated with the poisonous type. Uh, But really, there are over 35 native varieties in the United States of sumac. And I would say it is definitely an unsung hero in our ornamental gardens because it gives you this very exotic look year-round, essentially. Um, When when the leaves are opening, uh, they unfurl sort of like a... Um, a fern-like leaf because the leaf is what we call pinnate. So it's got this long stem in the center of the leaf and then little leaflets coming off the side of that stem like a feather. 
And so it gives you that sort of tropical look. It's one of the few plants, like with pawpaw, that looks very tropical, but it's not. It grows here naturally, natively, can handle our winters, no problem at all. But it does give you that exotic look. Now, one of its other attractions, other than the shape and the form of the leaf itself, is that uh, the flowers... uh, when the plant, when sumac flowers, it sends up these tall flower spikes and they can reach over a foot long and uh, the flowers, the seeds are all attractive to wildlife. Pollinators, they're attracted to the blooms and the birds will relish those seeds that they produce. So the fall colors are very fiery, very fiery. They usually start out as a yellow, which changes to a burnt orange and eventually to a nice red, a brilliant red, not a maroon, but a brilliant red. So with all of those flower spikes and seed pods hanging above this fiery foliage, it really is a great winter for fall color. Now, again, it's called sumac. There's Plenty of varieties. There's staghorn sumac. There's smooth sumac. Both of those are actually great plants for the landscape. The only trouble with sumac is uh, many of them tend to sucker and they send up sort of create a colony of sumac branches. So you'll have to put it in a space where it's okay to spread or put it in a space where you can easily uh, keep it at bay. Don't let it get too aggressive. And last but not least, I would mention witch hazel. Our native witch hazel, it's of course a large shrub, uh, can be easily trained though as a tree because it wants to be sort of multi-stem. You can have some nice structure to it, like with the service berry. Now, in the spring, really it's late winter, the witch hazel puts on yellow strap-like flowers. They sometimes appear in late fall. Some of the plants at the nursery were blooming in the fall, but then in early winter, uh, we see those yellow strap-like flowers when really nothing else is blooming. It does give you some great fall color because it's a bright yellow and sometimes to red. You may see some orange in between. Uh, Some years, though, the fall color for witch hazel is just not there. So if we don't have a great summer to prepare it, to uh, drop its leaves in a colorful way over fall, it's not on the top of my list. I guess that's why I put it lastly, just in case I didn't get to one of these (laughs) witch hazel. But I do like witch hazel. Um, It's a wonderful plant for wildlife. And these um, leaves actually stay on the branches for an extended period. There are plenty of plants that actually hold dry, crunchy leaves almost all winter long, and witch hazel is one of them. But it's a very easy plant to care for. I've seen it growing in Lake Lanier, not necessarily around Lake Lanier, but in Lake Lanier. And so it can handle a wide variety of soils, wet, boggy soil, all the way into fairly dry soil. Well, gang, I hope I've given you some ideas for fall color with native plants. If you missed any part of this program or want to hear more, go visit us at NewSouthernGarden.com. And for New Southern Garden and WRWH 93.9 FM, I'm Nathan Wilson, and I hope uh, you stay well and grow well. Give it a go! We'll see you next week. Hey, thanks for joining us for this edition of Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show. If you have a comment about today's program, you can reach out to Nathan by sending an email to grow at LanierNurseryGardens.com. Also get more information at NewSouthernGarden.com. Join us next Saturday on Local News Radio 93.9 FM and AM 1350 for Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show.